people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. actual date or exactly when it happened when it happened the exact day i was uh i was one See, i was three but i remember it like it was yesterday said, you know, if I ever I had to fuck a guy, I mean, had to because, like, my life depended on it, that's what I Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this episode, I am talking with Andrew Rouse. She's been on the show quite a few times before. Andrew's a great guy, great writer, and he wrote a book that came out back in 2019, I've been meaning to do this interview for a while now to talk to Andrew about his book, My Best Friend's Birthday. It's all about that early film. Tarantino calls it his film school. came out before Reservoir Dogs. It's never been officially released, though you can find it out on YouTube in a couple various cuts out there. Pretty rough around the edges, but a fascinating look at what Tarantino would become. Definitely check out My Best Friend's Birthday, the book, and enjoy this interview. Andrew Rausch, how did you come to write about this mysterious, never officially released Quentin Tarantino film, My Best Friend's Birthday? I had been a fan, as you know, of Quentin's for a long, long, long time. And I always tell people this, and you may cringe at this, but Pulp Fiction was the movie for me that woke me up out of this slumber and made me really get interested in film. Then there were some books on, uh, some early books on Quentin, uh, Jamie Bernard's biography, and there was another one before Winsley Clarkson's, I can't remember. But anyway, I found these books when I was in Seattle at a military thing, you know, and then that's when it clicked for me what I wanted to write about. And it was film. But then I thought, man, I want to write something about Tarantino. I mean, it was kind of dumb because, you know, at that time he had, he just had three films. But I mean, I guess it didn't stop these other people from writing books. Anyway, I set out, I wanted to make this book about all of his films, sort of like the old Citadel books, where they would have like the films of, uh, like Douglas Brode did one on De Niro that I really enjoyed. I've got one on Marlon Brando. So anyway, I was going to do this one on the films of Tarantino, and it would have been about 10 pages. (laughs) But anyway, I worked on it for a long time, and this was around the time of Jackie Brown. I worked on it for several years. I interviewed you for it, interviewed all kinds of people. The book... I don't know. I didn't have that much original stuff in it. And when I met Quentin, 
in 99, he kind of blew me off. I mean, he was okay, but he kind of blew me off. And even though he'd done a little bit of fact checking for the book, a lot of years went by and I, the book just sat, it kind of stagnated every now and then I would pick it back up and I would go back to work on it. And then I realized one day I picked up a book called the Quentin Tarantino FAQ. And I realized that it was essentially my book. The only difference was, was that I had some interviews accompanying each of the chapters on each film. And I also knew that it was probably better than my book. So there was really no reason to do that. I, um, Ended up just releasing the interviews in a book called Interviews on Quentin Tarantino. And that was a fun book. Didn't really do much, but it was a fun book. And it got those interviews out there. But I I had this idea. I had become friends with Craig Hammond, who used to be a collaborator with Quentin Tarantino. And I knew that they had done Quentin's early film, My Best Friend's Birthday. And like most Tarantino fans, I'd seen clips of it here and there. You know, and there's 15 minutes of it, basically 20 minutes put together. There's a couple of different versions of it that are just slightly different. And I had this idea to do a book on it. I thought this was a piece that was missing. Now that we've come to this point where Quentin is being recognized as one of the greatest filmmakers ever, whether one believes it or not, you know, but, but it is a thing that people are at least believing. And so I had this thought, this is a part of his history that's basically missing. And I had every book on Quentin and none of them dedicated more than two paragraphs to my best friend's birthday. It was just this footnote. And I really believed that it could be more than a footnote. And early on, I wasn't really sure what I could get out of it, but I thought, well, and then I'd also always wanted to do an oral history. So I had this idea, what if this was an oral history? It just kind of all came together. And, and again, Craig Hammond was a huge part of that. And we've become great friends since. Uh, you know, I can't thank him enough, but that was sort of the thinking of it. Well, even before my best friend's birthday, the book delves into the prior project as well as just those video archive days. I mean, you really take kind of a macro lens at first and then get it down into that microscopic, all of the different scenes of what my best friend's birthday could have or should have been, which I really appreciate. It feels like you kind of go from that 40,000 foot view and you just keep bringing it closer and closer as we go along. I really appreciate the way that the book is structured. At first, I wasn't sure how I was going to structure it. And then I came up with this idea. I kept talking to people more and more about the early days, the, the video archive days, as they talk about. And I started realizing that I was getting a lot of stuff that wasn't in these other books. With that, I started getting this idea. So the first part was going to be Quentin meeting all of these people and becoming friends with all these people like Craig and these different people that he worked with and, and Roger Avery. And eventually, you know, they're going to make movies. So anyway, that's chapter one. Chapter two is the the movies. And there were several early movies, as you mentioned, that nobody ever really talked about. So even though Quentin didn't direct those, he was involved in them and he was an actor and did these different things. He was a bad guy in one of them. And then the third part, what I did was I basically broke down the script Again, the script isn't completely loyal to – that's a whole story, and we can get to that. But I broke down the script of what it could have been and had sort of a running commentary, mostly mine, but then I would have quotes by Craig and different people kind of explaining you know, those scenes, where they came from, what they remember about them. I was really happy with the way that the book turned out, and I appreciate your comments about the way that it was put together. And I will say a couple of people have said that they believe that my book was the deepest look at Quentin in those years. And I do think that that's true, even the archive stuff. You know, it's mentioned in a lot of the books, but I mean, the the other books are mainly looking at like his whole life. And I just wanted this to be 
a really tight look at, I don't know, maybe 10 years of his life, a little bit less. So that's basically what it is. And I'm very, very proud of it. Yeah, because when it comes to those early days of, of Quentin, you get, oh, he was kind of a jerk to customers or maybe even physically harmed a customer at one point. Or you get the story of, yeah, he was in James Best's acting school, but you don't get that he was in other acting schools. You don't get what that experience of working with James Best was like. I mean, James Best does not come off as necessarily the best person in the book. So John Lucarelli uh, was an acting teacher and actor that was basically running James Best School. And I was fortunate enough to interview Jack. And I will say that as nice as Jack was, Jack ends up getting the short shrift in the book because there is somebody that's making fun of his acting in it. And it wasn't me. It's an oral history. You know, I always wondered how, you know, Jack took the book. But I mean, this is a hundred different people's or, you know, 30 different people's opinions. You know, we have to remember, I mean, those are not my opinion. And and the whole idea of it is that they're different uh, sort of dueling interviews where you have one person says this and somebody else says, no, it was like this. And they say, well, it was really like this. And, you know, which is what an oral history is. But okay, so James Best Acting School. So we did a lot of look at that and uh, the time that they were there and the different opinions on the way that certain things are remembered is kind of funny. But James Best wrote in an autobiography that was published by Bear Manor, which is a publisher that I've done a lot of books with, including this one. And he had written a big part about Quentin. You know, Quentin was essentially his most famous of the people in his acting class. There were other people that went through there. You know, there was like Jerry Seinfeld. And at the end of the day, you know, even as big as Jerry is, Jerry doesn't change the game in some ways, whether they're good or bad, Quentin changes the game. And for whatever reason, James Best was really, really shitty about Quentin in the book. And, and uh, you know, he says uh, Quentin was a bum and he doesn't know how to write. And, and he gets his facts wrong and even telling the story, which is kind of funny, because he talks about Quentin offering him a role in Curdled, which he produced. Quentin didn't write Curdled, but he produced it. And anyway, uh, James Best is going off about how Tarantino was a shitty writer on that script. And he was offended that he was offered scale. Somebody says in there, one of the other teachers says in there, you know, that in James Best's day and in, in his mind, the amount that an actor was paid was sort of represented who they were and what they were. And so he was he took real offense at this. The part that I thought was really funny is that, uh, as we all know, Quentin loved Rolling Thunder. And I have to admit, I hadn't seen Rolling Thunder until you know, Quentin started talking about it. The one thing I got from Quentin more than anything else was I found out about a lot of films that I didn't know existed. And Rolling Thunder was one of them way, way back. And and I love that movie, but so did Quentin. So there's a story in there where James Best talks about Quentin coming and talking to him about loving Rolling Thunder. And James Best goes off about that's a shitty movie. And, you know, and it, it just really downgrades the movie, which Let's be honest, one of the best movies that has James Best in it, for sure. He was a real dick about all of that. And I hate to speak ill of the dead, but I mean, come on, it's really shitty. So what was funny was when I interviewed Quentin, I bring that part up to him. Quentin's never seen it, never heard about it, didn't know that James Best said these things. So he's like, oh, I've never heard this. Read it to me. So I read it to him, and he's sitting there kind of quietly, kind of stunned. And he's basically, and I'm paraphrasing because it's been several years, but he says, okay, I'm going to tell you the truth here about James Best. 
The truth is he only ever came in our class maybe eight times and we maybe only spoke twice. And I don't know if he ever actually saw me act. And so, you know, basically he's, they're saying fuck you to each other. And it's, it's interesting and it's entertaining because it's people that we know, but I never could understand quite why James Best felt the need. I don't know if he didn't want somebody else taking his spotlight and he felt like the thing that becomes most associated with his acting class is Tarantino and not him, who, according to all accounts, was never there. It's interesting. It's really interesting. But the stuff about the acting class is some of the most fun stuff in the book to me. I had uh, great fun writing about that. I interviewed Jack Lucarelli, as I said. So I also got to interview Brenda Hillhouse, which was another teacher there. And people might remember her as she's the, the woman that gets dragged to the motel in from Dust Till Dawn and gets raped. And she's also Butch's mother in the infamous uh, watch scene in Pulp Fiction. And she was also in Quentin's ER episode. She was fantastic and really, really helpful. And I interviewed both of them, and they were both really open, really candid. So it, it was a lot of fun. And I interviewed several other people that were in that class, too. And they talked about famously about a skit where Quentin and Craig and Craig Hammond and some other people brought a bunch of guns in to be in a scene. And the amount of guns that really show up and what really happened is, is kind of debated you know, because some of them say that they took it to James Best first or or to Jack Lucarelli and they got it approved. And then other people are like, Jack blew up and it, it was it was really offended. And somebody else whose acting career didn't go very far at all takes the time to talk about how they were horrible actors relying on props. So <laughs> it, it, it's interesting and it's fun. And you wouldn't think that much fun could happen in an acting class that would make for a good book. But there's a lot there. It was fun. You talked about best working for scale. I'm trying to remember, did Alan Garfield take any payment for his role in my best friend's birthday? I'm not sure. I think he did not. You know, what was funny was that different people were talking about how uh, Alan Garfield, you know, they thought that Alan Garfield came in and he was kind of trying to be a dick and kind of taken over. And the thing I thought was interesting was that Quentin, who's often known as having a huge ego, says, no, I didn't. I didn't feel like I got dressed down by him. This was the difference between having a real actor as opposed to people with no real acting history. And he said, I think they didn't understand. You know, basically, he wanted the things done right if he was going to be in it. And I think that's understandable. I was I tried to interview Alan Garfield. He was still alive. Um, he was sick. I didn't know how sick. And he was in like the old actor's home, I think they call it. And I had written him a letter, never heard back. But it would have been really neat to have had some Alan Garfield representation. How many folks did you end up talking to for the book? I want to say maybe a little north of 20, but, and that may be high because you're talking about a movie that really aren't very many people in, but, um, and, and as most no budget movies, you end up with crew members that are doing multiple tasks. But the thing I was proud about was that I got Quentin, Craig and Roger Avery, who all went on to become directors to different degrees. I mean, Craig laughs about, he does a lot of B movie stuff, primarily screenwriting, and he said he always thought he was going to be an A-list writer, and that's what he was shooting for. And Quentin was shooting to be a B-list filmmaker and writer, and they kind of ended up in each other's places. And it, and I interviewed Roger years ago. If you'll remember, his name is in the in the title of one of my books, 50 Filmmakers from Roger Avery to Stephen Zalian. Roger is a blast to talk to. He's a lot like Quentin, except with a little less ego. I, I was really proud of that. So I was really proud at the end of the day of the amount of people that I got. There were a few that I never did get, but overall, 
you know, most of the people that were known, I got. I did interview Crystal Martell, who was one of the actresses in Hard Bodies. And I remember telling her that 12-year-old me would have been very impressed with myself to have interviewed her. But uh, I thought it was really interesting, her dedication to the film, because it it's shot over years on Quentin's minimum wage budget. And so they only can get the cameras on weekends and they're shooting entire weekends and it goes on for years, which causes the continuity problems that end up being the death of the film, sort of. But she went off and she became a teacher and moved to another state. And he called her and he said, we need you. Shockingly, she came back. I mean, that's dedication and that's loyalty. And I thought, wow, that's that's impressive. I mean, people can either tell horror stories about independent films or they can tell these stories of people feeling like a family. And it sounds like maybe this was a little bit of both. I think it was a little bit of both. It seems like it was mostly positive. And speaking of family, I want to point out, I did interview Quentin's mother, Connie Zastapil, who really was integral to getting Quentin involved in the book. A really nice lady. She did have an issue with one thing that was in the book. I can't blame her for it. But it was not a thing that was was me. It was somebody's quote. One of the people, I think it was Rick Squarey, who was one of their friends at the time, said something like Quentin didn't really have a male role model. And she took offense at that. And, you know, she mentioned his stepfather. You know, I don't I don't blame her for that. But again, that was I, the whole idea of the book was just to have different people's opinions. And a lot of them I know are going to be wrong. It's just like, you know, if you show somebody a blue wall and 20, 30 years later, you interview them about it. It's going to be three different colors. And then one guy will lie about the color in some way to make himself look better. Like that's what always happens in oral histories. Kind of the Rashomon thing. You mentioned how the film was never completed. I heard that it burned up in a lab accident. Quentin told everybody that the film burned up in a lab accident. I started putting things together. I remembered that Rand Vossler, who worked on the movie many, many years ago, had told me that he had all these tapes of my best friend's birthday. And I hadn't really put two and two together and thought about it. But then I realized years later, he had them still in his garage. He had all of them. So I end up even getting a photo and putting them in the book. And I bring it up to Quentin. And he was I was afraid how that was going to go. So I save it till the very end of the interview because I don't want to make him look like a liar. Not that it matters because that part really is a footnote in the grand scheme of things. And he's very frank. And Quentin says, you know, we shot it over so many years, and I was so proud of it. And he said, you know, there was a lab accident that ruined a little bit of the film, but basically all of the film was there. And he said, you know, when I looked at the movie, it just wasn't what we thought it was going to be. They thought it was going to be something like Clerks or She's Got to Have It. This really, you know, not that they knew Clerks at the time, but that's what they, they likened it to was something like, a you know, a low-budget uh, indie that they thought was really going to catch the world on fire. And when they looked at it, it was very amateurish, but it, it was, it was his film school. And, you know, it, maybe that's a cliche to say, and he says it and everybody else says it, but I, I think it's true. It was his film school. And it's where that all of them learned about filmmaking these and those other little films. I was so glad that you included Steve Pachowski's review of the film because of that line that he says about my best friend's birthday being the Rosetta stone of Tarantino films. I mean, that, that's one of Steve's best things that he's ever written. And I just appreciate that so much. And I appreciated you including that in the book. As you know, I've written for Steve for Shock Center uh, for a lot of years. And, and I really, really respect that guy. And I respect his work. And Quentin actually drops the reference to the uh, review in my interview. And then I thought, man, I should go back and get that and put it in the book. 
So I asked Steve and Steve was completely on board. You know, he's a great writer, but there are a couple of things that are wrong in it, as there always are really early on about things that, especially things that we don't know all the details about or see. So that's kind of interesting to to kind of see, uh, you know, to get a glimpse of a time when no one knew much of anything about my best friend's birthday. I remember when YouTube first became a thing, and I didn't really know what to make of it, but somebody told me, my best friend's birthday is on YouTube. And I think that was the first thing I ever looked up on YouTube. I was so excited. And then I saw it and it was pretty rough and I was like, not as excited, but you know, the, the long monologue he has about wanting to commit suicide as an infant, but then seeing a Brady Bunch episode that entertained him and, or a Partridge family, it was a Partridge family episode. You know, I always thought that was really funny and there are some funny lines in it. It's just a pretty crude movie, but, but that, that's kind of a funny thing that as my first YouTube experience. I always like how those pieces and parts kind of move around and shift, you know, things like uh, the Ezekiel 2517 speech being inside of from dust till dawn, or, you know, just how pieces kind of move and shift until they finally find that home. And there are definitely pieces, lines, themes that are all the way back to that nascent film, all the way back to my best friend's birthday. So, I mean, obviously they're not done as well as they would be done again, but it is that, like Steve said, that Rosetta Stone of like, oh, okay, this is how we can kind of help figure out where a lot of Tarantino stuff came from. That's right. And it's really representative of his earliest works where you saw a lot more, I was going to say a lot more pop culture references because there were a lot of films and then they were more in different times, which is why probably we saw less pop culture references. But I can't really say they weren't there at all because Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is wall-to-wall pop culture references. But uh, it is interesting because it has a lot of the same stuff, lines that are taken exactly, you know, put into true romance or things that are very close. And the fact that the two best friends are named Mickey and Clarence, you know, the, the leads from Natural Born Killers and true romance, I think that's very interesting. And I, I think the other thing, you asked me what interested me about this, you know, it's a slapstick comedy. And when you think of Quentin Tarantino's work, you don't think slapstick comedy. Uh, maybe if you think of Four Rooms, but let's be honest, no one thinks of Four Rooms. We try not to, you know, and he's said before that people identify him as Mr. Gun or the gunman. And there's only one gun in my best friend's birthday and it never goes off. And I think that's really interesting. And it shows us that whether this was perfectly done the way a big Hollywood film would be or not, it shows us that, you know, where he might have gone. And again, Craig Hammond played a big role in this as far as, you know, he came up with the original storyline. And it's one of those things where people don't really talk about that in the same way that people don't really talk about the storyline from from Dust Till Dawn being Robert Kurtzman's originally, you know, and he and he uh, approached other people to direct it or to write it. Uh, I think C. Courtney Joyner was one of them that he first approached to write it. So, you know, or or Roger Avery's contributions in Pulp Fiction. You know, Quentin will take help, but he's not always as as uh, generous to give the credit. That's really what your book helps elucidate is the entire idea of how much Hammond is a co-creator when it comes to my best friend's birthday. I keep saying it's Quentin Durantino's first film, but it really is Quentin Durantino and Craig Hammond's first film. And just that kind of back and forth of and Hammond is very, you know, open to saying, well, I came up with this part, but then this became 
Quentin's, you know, he wrote this or rewrote it and just how they shared that experience. I mean, it, it was very enlightening to see just where one creator ends and the other begins. There's a little talk in the book too. And, you know, and I'll mention it. It's kind of sad. How many of these people were very close friends, especially him and Craig? And maybe I don't have the facts right. And then maybe none of the people I interview have the facts right. But it really looks like Quentin got famous and he left everybody else behind him. Even Roger, you know, are their friends again now? But uh, Al Harrell, who was one of their closest friends, uh, who was a, a director that died, uh, he directed some of the early stuff, never really made it. But, you know, he had died 20 years ago. And when I interviewed Quentin, Quentin said the primary reason that he wanted to do my book was so he could get Al's contact information. I mean, that's how far away he had been from all of this. And I mean, I can't knock him. He's he's living in a different world than the rest of us. He's living in a world where, you know, where you have a hundred million dollars and you, you know, you can be friends with whatever celebrity you want. You know, you're going to parties with Jamie Foxx and all these other people, you know, I, I can't knock him, but I feel bad for some of the people because Craig is, you, it, Craig comes through in the interviews as somebody that really misses his friend. And I tried to reconnect them and it did not happen, but Craig was open to it. He's a good guy, you know, and I, I just hate to see some of these people get left in the dust, but I think that's probably the way it works most of the time. I was kind of a dumbass. I never had taken the time to look up Rand Vossler. And I thought that he was a fake person for a lot of years because I read that early draft of Natural Born Killers. And at the end, it says, you know, directed by Rand Vossler. There's a title in the, the screenplay. I always thought that that was some old timey director that Tarantino was making a reference to. I never put two and two together until I'm reading your book and I'm like, oh, wait, Rand Vossler is a real guy and he's actually part of this whole experience. If you ever get a chance to read Jane, Jane Hampshire's book, Killer Instinct, she was one of the producers on Natural Born Killers, and she talks really in depth. It's a no holds barred book, I and mean, she gives zero fucks, and she'll just say it about Oliver and Quentin and all of them, and and she really goes more into detail about all of the things that happened with Rand. And Rand is credited as a producer on Natural Born Killers because originally Quentin's idea when he was selling Natural Born Killers was that Rand was going to direct it. But of course, you know, when bigger producers, Don Murphy and Jane Hampshire get it and they're taking it to studios, studios aren't excited about a, a director that nobody knows that has no track record. And, and he kind of gets kicked to the kicked to the side too. It's been a long damn time since I've read that book, but I know that Don Murphy has some sort of role in that severing of Hammond and Tarantino's relationship. How does he enter the picture? Don Murphy optioned the screenplay for my best friend's birthday from Craig, but it was after Don and Quentin had had their big famous run-in. I did interview Don a lot of years ago for that first book. Don was really helpful, very open, but here's the thing. Quentin got mad because Craig sold the script. Craig was thinking, this is a thing that my friend and I can work on and we can make some money. And you know, I, I don't think it came from anywhere negative. You know, Craig was obviously didn't have the money that Quentin had. I don't have the money that Quentin has, do you? But Quentin got irate, and it became one of those things, just like Don Murphy, where once you piss him off, you're going to be on the shit list. And don't get me wrong, Don Murphy deserves that. So when I interviewed Don Murphy, he sort of alluded to the fact that, well, I can't remember the exact wording, but he made it known that he was not really ever going to make 
my best friend's birthday. And I mean, if you look a little past that, we can see that he only optioned it to piss off Quentin. But in pissing off Quentin, he ruined Craig and Quentin's friendship. And I hate that. Craig sort of gives an, gives an impassioned apology in the book. But when I ask Quentin about it, Quentin is basically like, it's something I can never forgive. How was the book received when it came out? The book has been very well received. You know, the sales aren't through the roof. It's a small indie publisher, but I think on Amazon, for some reason, there's two listings of it on Amazon. The hardcover gets a separate listing from the paperback, but between the two, I think there's 15 uh, ratings or reviews and they're all five stars. So, you know, I think that for the right audience, this is a must have book. It would have been for me. That's the thing as a writer, you're always writing the book that you want to see. But then when you write it, you don't get to enjoy it the way that you would have had anybody else written it. So it's a kind of a shitty deal. Well, I enjoyed it fully. So thank you for writing it. I appreciate that. I know you always have so many irons in the fire. What are you working on these days? A lot. Uh, I just finished. Uh, I, so I write a lot of fiction now. And I finished a haunted house novel today, first draft. As of now, I've sold or published 51 books to different publishers, which is a lot. It seems like a lot to me too, but uh, I had a heart transplant. I'm, you know, I'm always trying to get as much done as I can in case if I kick the bucket one day, because uh, most heart transplant patients, the average is 10 years. Uh, but of course, there's people that are really old on that list that weight that down a little bit. But I'm working on a biography of uh, my old friend, Gary Graver, who was uh, best known as Orson Welles cinematographer. He also worked with Ron Howard and John Cassavetes. Uh, he directed about three or 400 adult films under the radar, and he was also doing B-movies. He was a really interesting man. After I worked with him, and then he, I, I did a book with him years ago about his films with uh, Orson, and after he passed away, he just kept popping up in every book I would work on. I would do interviews, and here would come Gary Graver's name. And I realized that Gary Graver was sort of this Forrest Gump kind of character, not in the negative way, but just a Forrest Gump character in that he's in every story of the time. Like every story you bring up, there's Gary Graver in some way. And I just thought, wow. So I'm working on a, an oral history uh, biography of him. The one I'm really uh, working on the most right now, I'm trying to finish an oral history of the room. That's gone really well so far. I figure I'm about a month to six weeks away from being finished with that. Uh, and I'm doing a book for Bear Manor that they commissioned on Watermelon Man, which, you know, you did an episode of On Watermelon Man. And that's been an interesting book to write about. There's just not as much out there as you might think there would be about this 1970 film. So that's that's been a chore. But that's those are pretty much the things I'm writing. I'm working on. Oh, and another book on, uh, on Quentin. I'm editing a collection of essays on Quentin Tarantino. Andrew Roush, it is always so great talking with you, sir. Well, thank you for having me. It's always great to be on here.